Well, we are continuing in our Through the Bible series called Unravel, where we're going through the Bible from beginning to end, trying to uh, untangle some of the confusion and put the pieces together. And so last Sunday, we looked at 1 Kings chapters 1 through 4. And today, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to 1 Kings, we're going to be looking at chapters 5 through 8 today, but really focusing on chapter 8. There are some extraordinary things there for us. As you're turning, let me ask you a question that may sound silly, it may sound unrealistic, but I want you to hang on to this until the end, and I think it'll maybe make a lot more sense then. Imagine if God announced to you and to the world that his presence was going to come down from heaven and take up permanent residence in your house. How would that news impact your life? Throughout all the years that the Israelites have been traveling, we've, we've walked with them now from Egypt all the way to the promised land. In all those years, in all those travels, God's presence has gone with them and his presence has dwelt inside that mobile temple called the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies, upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where his presence was represented on this earth for all of those years. And we remember back in our earlier studies that King David one time looked out from his incredible palace and said, you know, it's, it's not fair that I live in a palace, but God dwells in a tent. And so his heart was stirred to, he even said it there, that I I want to build a place for you, God, that's truly worthy of you. And so God began that process in David's heart, but told David that he wasn't going to be the one who would build it. His son Solomon would. And that never came about until David established Jerusalem as the, the permanent capital for Israel. And when that happened, God began to give instructions to build a new temple where his presence would reside. And as we come to 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8 today, we see now the the building of that temple begin to take place. And it was an enormous construction project beyond anything I think any of us could comprehend. Well, chapter 5 kicks off with King Solomon sending word to another king named King Hiram, who who had been a good friend of his father David's. And Solomon ordered an enormous amount of lumber, special kind of of lumber from Hiram, to be sent to Jerusalem for the building of this temple. And we pick up in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 5. And this is Solomon speaking to Hiram. And he said, And behold, I plan to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, according to what the Lord said to my father David, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. Now what Solomon is doing here is seeking out the best of the best in order to get the perfect materials, the perfect workmen, to bring this project together so that it can be done in a way that is absolutely uh, honoring and glorifying to God, something that is 
if, if possible, worthy on this earth for the presence of God to dwell in. And so this business arrangement with Solomon and King Hiram is put in place, it's agreed upon, and it went on for many years with the temple being built. There's some interesting details in there about how King Hiram said he was going to use uh, rafts, barges kind of things to float all this timber down to where it needed to be, very interesting uh, stuff. And then in verse 12, it says, So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. And so begins the largest construction project anyone had ever seen. And the remaining verses of chapter 5 give some specific details about the size, the scale of this workforce. I'll sum it up for you. Solomon recruited 30,000 common laborers, 30,000 common laborers, 70,000 burden bearers or men who could carry heavy loads, 80,000 stone cutters, and 3,300 foremen who would supervise the workers. Now, I don't know if you've ever managed a team of people, but that right there just gives me hives thinking about that. I don't even know where you would begin. And so finally, after all these years of waiting and longing for God to have a permanent dwelling on this earth, construction on the temple is finally underway. Chapter 6 goes into mind-numbing details about every aspect of this temple. We won't go through it all, but it gives exact dimensions of the temple, of all the rooms. It talks about the shape of the windows, how they needed to be made precisely. It talks about the three different levels and how the stairs were to look. It gives details of the floors, the ceilings, the doors, the walls, the beams, the planks, the carvings of cherubim and palm trees, the golden altar, the golden table for the showbread, the golden lampstand, it tells us how the entire interior of this temple was overlaid in gold. And you can just maybe try to get a picture of this in your mind walking into this place. It just must have been awe-inspiring, and I'm guessing you needed sunglasses to, to walk in there with all this gold. And then starting in chapter 7, the first 12 verses of chapter 7 tell us how uh, Solomon also began building a house for himself and a house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. We talked about her last week, and it goes into the details of that. But then in verse 13, through the end of of the chapter, uh, verse 51, it gives even more staggering details about the temple, the furnishings, the courtyard. It talks about the pillars of bronze with caps of bronze on top that were carved into the shapes of pomegranates. It talks about the uh, enormous uh, brazen laver, or bronze basin, also called the Molten Sea, which was much bigger. Basically, this temple was a copy of the tabernacle, just on a much, much larger scale. And so this bronze basin that the priests would use for washing as they did the sacrifices uh, was, was huge. It was 45 feet in circumference, and it was to be mounted on 12 oxen carved of bronze, three facing north, three south, three east, and three west. And there's significance and symbolism in all of that, And I encourage you to pursue that if you want to. Like I said, I I have a tough time picking and choosing what what details to drill down on because we've been doing this for two and a half years and we're only in 1 Kings 5. So 
So it goes into all the details of this. And then chapter 7, verse 51 says, So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And so these first three chapters now, they've all been about details. They've all been about the material, the carvings, the coverings in the temple. Nothing but detail, detail, detail. And that's really all you focus on in these three chapters. But I skipped a verse back in chapter 6. That's important. Because right in the middle of all these endless details, God comes and speaks to Solomon to remind him of what is most important. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, concerning this temple which you are building. Now you would think in the midst of these chapters, God was going to give him more details. But he says, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And, and God is saying, he's, he's sort of stopping Solomon in, in mid-stride. And he's realigning his focus. And he's saying, Solomon, my main concern is not the building. It's your heart. It's your heart. That's what I care about, Solomon, more than anything else, that you'll continue to keep my commands and walk in my ways. And folks, I would say to you, that has always been God's main concern, and it is still his concern today. God says you can build all the fancy buildings you want. You can bring sacrifices and offering. You can praise and worship till the cows come home. But if your heart is not fully committed to me, it's all a big waste of time. Remember, Samuel said to King Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, after Saul had been making offerings to the Lord, like you know he was really committed to the Lord. But God and Samuel saw right through it to his heart. And Samuel said to him, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this theme runs throughout the Bible. Another example, Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Jesus, in his day, pointed to the religious elite, the people who all these so-called common people looked up to and admired. Whoa, he's so holy. He's so religious. You know what Jesus said about them? He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. May that never be said of us. I pray that we would never allow this warning to slip too far out of our thoughts. And honestly, I'm thankful to be in a church where we all try to encourage and remind one another that this is our focus. I even loved it a couple weeks ago in the elders meeting. Talked about a million different things, but it all came back to this. 
we can do this, we can do that, we can do the other, and it's probably all fine. But if it's not for the purpose of the mission of the kingdom of God, let's not do it. Let's spend our energy, our time, our resources, focused like a laser on things that are going to matter a million years from now. Well, after seven years of construction, the temple was finally complete. And so I'm pretty sure uh, that the foreman they had on this job was the same guy who did the cabinets in our kitchen, (laughs) who was still there on Christmas Eve. Oh, three weeks, about three weeks. What was it, six months or something? So seven years, the, the temple is now complete. And by the way, I think there's something in that as well. And I, I can't spend time on all this, but you know, it said earlier, Solomon finished the work. Now the temple is complete. There's something to be said for that. You know what? Because it's easier to start things than it is to finish them. And I just think it says a lot that after seven years, Solomon didn't go, wow, man, this is crazy. This is too much work. I want to go lay out by the pool and order a chocolate nut sundae or whatever. But he finished the work. And I would just encourage you, in every area of your life, be a finisher. In your journey with Christ, don't fall short of the finish line. I see it so many times, and it breaks my heart. And I'll tell you what, it puts a holy fear inside of me. Because I know that I'm only two or three dumb decisions away from ruining my life and ruining this church. And so we should keep this before us, always in our marriage, in our walk with God, in our dealings with people, in our finances, everything. Let's not take the short route. Let's finish. Let's go the long run and bring honor to God. Well, the temple was completed. This beautiful, magnificent building and courtyard and all, but there was still one thing missing. Yes, when you looked at it, you saw this magnificent structure, but the presence of God was not there. And because of that, this spectacular temple really was was nothing much more than a nicely assembled pile of stones and wood and gold. And so in chapter 8, Solomon calls for the men to go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And verse 6 says, Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. Verse 10, And when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now this was a pivotal moment in the life of Israel and a pivotal moment in this process of the construction of the temple. Because... As we've seen in our past studies, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where the very presence of God dwelt. And so this magnificent temple now occupies a strategic place in Jerusalem. And all the writings that you read, the extra-biblical writings of Jewish history and so on, they will tell you that this temple immediately became the central focus of the entire city. And the central focus of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And the central focus of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And the central focus of the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. 
And the typology, the significance of that is clear. That God himself must be the center. He must be at the heart of all the daily life and worship of his people. Everything now revolves around this temple and around God's presence. And to remind everyone of that, Solomon gathers all the people together and he prays an incredible prayer of dedication. And here's really where I want to focus our time and see how this connects with us still today. This is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness or the cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And then Solomon goes on in the, in the following verses to bless the Lord for his unfailing goodness and faithfulness and provision and protection of his people throughout all the previous generations. Verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, keeping covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You spoke with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And then in verse 27, he asks a question that should really dumbfound us all. Solomon said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? What a question. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house or this temple that I have built? Verse 28, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And then Solomon goes on and he spends a while asking God, pleading with God to hear the prayers of his people when they sin and they cry out for forgiveness. He goes through numerous examples of sin that could be committed. And he says, Lord, when your people commit this sin and this judgment comes upon them, hear their cry, Lord, when they call out to you. And I pray, give them forgiveness. Again, it's a reminder, we should never take any of God's goodness for granted. We should never go through life assuming, eh, I'm going to go do what I want this weekend. And then, you know, Sunday at church, I'll make it all right with God. Hmm. Well, that's presuming on the grace and mercy of God. So those verses, I think, are important. Solomon says, Lord, we're going to sin. We're going to mess up. And when we do, I'm not going to assume that you're going to forgive it, but I pray that you will. Verse 54, and when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven, by the way, we don't have to pray like this all the time, okay? We Americans have messed things up so bad. 
You look at all the ways prayers were offered in the Bible, including Jesus, many times like this, eyes open, looking up to heaven. So Solomon is now doing this prayer. Boy, he's dropped to his knees, just sensing the power and presence of God. And now he stands, verse 55, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That he as the leader is putting, he's asking for blessings upon his people. I love that. Verse 56, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. It's a recurring theme. God, you've kept your promise. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And that's still true today. Not one word has failed, nor will it ever. Verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself. Wow. Do you ever pray, God, give me a heart for you, rather than saying, I've really got to try to work up a heart for God? Say, God, give me a heart for you. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. Verse 59. And may my words, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require. And here's the desired outcome of all of this that has taken place, the building of the temple, this prayer. Here's the desired outcome, verse 60. Why are we doing all this? that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be perfect or wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Solomon here uses a phrase in verse 60 that we've already seen many times throughout the Bible, and we'll see it again. And it's a phrase that echoes the the very desire of God himself. It's that all people of the earth may know that God is God, that there is no other besides him. God longs for everyone to know him. He longs for everyone to worship him and glorify him because that's why we were created. You and I were not created to run around building our own kingdom We were created for one thing, to worship and glorify God. And that gets lost in the busyness of life, doesn't it? Whoo, I got another appointment, got a race here, race there. And I get it, that's all, it's all fine. It's all part of our society. But as we do that, let's never forget in everything we do that our goal, our purpose, our aim in all of that is to bring glory to God, to point others to God. Even in our relationships, our business dealings, whatever, to point other people to God. You know, I I remember this as a young boy in South Africa. My mom and I had gone to the grocery store, and it's not like we have here. It was a a little place. I think it was called Spar, maybe. But anyway, we were were at the register checking out, and we left, went home, unpacking the groceries, and my mom said, oh, no, Philip. She's the only one who calls me Philip. I said, what? She said, the cashier gave me too much change back. She said, let's get in the car and go back. I went, what? Why? Why would you bother? 
without saying a word, without preaching a sermon to me, we got in the car, we drove back, she went up to the cashier and she said, you gave me too much money, I just wanted to bring it back. I was eight, maybe. I'm 50-something now, and I still remember that. Why? Because her, just a common daily action brought glory to God and pointed me to God. It's powerful. You don't need to stand up here and preach a sermon for your life to bring glory to God. Heaven help us. I think we got enough preachers already, you know? What we need is more followers of Christ who will preach sermons Monday through Saturday out there. That's what we need. So God longs for everyone to know him, to glorify him, but how in the world would unbelieving nations, I'm going back to to this time here, but it also connects with us, how would unbelieving nations see the beauty and the truth of God on earth? Well, the Bible makes it clear they would see it by looking at God's people, by observing how they live, by watching their relationships, by seeing how they worship, by noticing how they handle suffering and success, by listening to their words. You see, here's what God established for his people Israel, that Israel would be kind of a, collectively, kind of a priesthood of God ministering his work on the earth so that if the world wanted to know, if the unbelieving world wanted to know about God or creation or male and female or morality or sin or justice and so on, where would they go? They wouldn't get on the internet to find it. They would come to Israel to find out. That nation of Israel existed to represent God to the world. Folks, you and I have been given the same calling. No, we were not part of Israel at the beginning, but the Bible tells us that they eventually turned their back on God, and so God, in his grace, brought us in, grafted us in to be his children, to be part of his family. We've been given the same calling now that Israel had, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But in those days, we need to understand the temple, as I said, was, it was the center of, of the national and religious life of Israel. If you asked any Jew what was the holiest place on earth, every one of them would say the temple. Even a thousand years later, when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, the temple, yes, it was a rebuilt temple at that time, but the temple was still the center of all Jewish faith and activity. Everything revolved around the temple. It was the most sacred, most revered, most beloved spot in the world. And it's that context that helps us understand why the words of Jesus ruffled the feathers of these Jews, why they wanted to kill him. When he said things like in the temple, when he went into the temple and overturned the tables and got a whip and drove the money changers out. Remember, this is a holy place to the Jews. Jesus comes in, and he drives the money changers out with a whip, and the Jews immediately demand to know by what authority he did such an inconceivable thing. They said, give us proof. And Jesus said, you want proof? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And the Jews said, 
It took decades to build this temple. You're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? But the Bible tells us that Jesus was speaking specifically about what? His body. His body. And so we, we mustn't miss what's going on here. Jesus is not just doing little word plays to try to intrigue people. There's something very important taking place in the words of Jesus. What he's saying is he is equating himself with the temple. In fact, it's even more serious than that. He was hinting at the fact that he himself was the replacement temple. And boy, the Jews couldn't handle that. They could not process that. And of course, Jesus was right in saying that because the evidence of that claim was seen throughout his ministry. Now, if your mind goes back to all the details that we studied on the tabernacle, every piece of furniture, the brazen altar where sins were atoned for, the laver where cleansing took place, and, and, and the lampstands and the table and the ark and all of that, we went through all of that. And I told you back then that every part of the tabernacle and then now the temple, it all points to Jesus all of it. And so, by what authority did Jesus claim to be the new temple? Well, we see it in his ministry. Every time Jesus pronounced that someone's sins were forgiven, he was saying that he was now the place to come to for forgiveness, not the brazen altar in the temple. To Jews, the only way sins could be forgiven was by a priest at the brazen altar in the temple. Jesus has the audacity now to show up on the scene and say to people, your sins are forgiven. It's no wonder the Jews murmured and, says, and said, who is this who even forgives sins? We see it when Jesus said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. And what he's saying is, hey gang, God's presence no longer dwells inside that building. You're looking at God's presence right here, standing here, talking to you. And their minds just went, John 1.14 tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. In the original language, it's literally saying, God came down and pitched a tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Talk for an hour about that. Jesus wasn't just acting like some kind of religious rebel. He was acting as God's replacement temple. Or maybe it'd be more accurate to say Jesus was the one to whom the tabernacle and the temple had pointed all along. Everything that the temple had meant for almost a thousand years now could be found in Jesus. The presence of God, as I said, was now found through Jesus, not in a building. The hunger for God's truth and divine teaching could now be satisfied not in the temple, but by feeding on the words of Jesus. Believers could now lift up their praises to God, not just at one sacred location, but wherever they gathered in his name. And forgiveness of sins could be received through the one-time sacrifice of Jesus rather than through the ongoing sacrifices of the priests, and on and on we go. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament system pointed to. But I want to wrap up with this amazing truth and just really try to lean in and take this in because this is so powerful. 
This is one of those things that I feel unqualified to teach on. I'm, I'm just going to give it a shot here and ask for God to do the work. But if you and I can get this, this is one of those things that will transform your Christian life. We read about the temple, we hear about the temple, and honestly to us, it's just dusty old history. But the fact is that all of us who are in Christ today, we all enjoy an amazing privilege that those ancient Israelites could never have dreamed of. As I said, that temple was the only place on earth where they could go to be near the presence of God. But even then, they couldn't see it, and they dared not get too close to it. The presence of God was this mysterious, frightening, overpowering force that people both wanted and feared. But now, the very presence of God dwells inside every true believer. How do you put that into words? And again, I think that doesn't hit us anywhere near as hard as it would have these ancient Israelites because, can I be bold enough to say this, and I don't think we've done it intentionally, we've shrunk our view of God. You know, those people wouldn't even write the name of God. Oh, today, even Christians out on the golf course and they, they miss a shot, they curse the, by the name of God. They think nothing of it. I have a Jewish friend overseas who we still email once in a while, and to this day, when he writes me an email, and he writes the name of God, he puts G-D. He will not write it. Why? Because, boy, they revered God. He was holy. He was powerful. He was fearsome. The one from whom heaven and earth flee. The one who is like a flaming fire. We don't see God that way. God's our buddy now. God's our pal. He's going to bail us out when we mess up. Heaven, help us. The God of the universe is so powerful, so so mighty, so glorious, so magnificent, majestic. We don't have words in the dictionary to adequately describe his beauty and power and majesty. That God, that God now dwells inside us if we're saved. What that means is we are now the temple of God. You understand that the temple didn't die out in Jesus' day. You read the New Testament, it's repeated over and over and over again. The temple, oh, that thing over there on the hill, guess what? You are the temple. You are the temple. You are the temple. It was a mind-boggling thought to these people. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? and That the Spirit of God dwells in you. That physical temple back then where the glory of the presence of God dwelt, where prayers were offered up, where sacrifices were made, where praise and worship would ascend. That is now our job, to be holy temples through which God's work can continue on this earth. In fact, the Bible says that through Christ, you and I have been made priests to carry out the ministry of God. 1 Peter 2.5 you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
through Jesus Christ. We're now a temple. We are now priests serving out of that temple, our body, in order to bring about the ministry of God. Who could ever comprehend something like that? That we are now the temple of God. That we're called to serve from that temple as a holy priesthood, doing the work of ministry and bringing glory to God. Solomon asked, will God indeed dwell on the earth? That in itself was a hard enough concept to grasp, never mind the fact that now God dwells inside every true believer. Can we even begin to comprehend the magnitude of that? Folks, listen, that ought to leave us breathless in wonder and awe. What an amazing privilege, but what a serious responsibility that we are now the representatives of God on this earth. Wow. No wonder Paul gave these stern warnings to believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, when we started, I asked you to imagine how you would feel if God announced that his presence was going to come down from heaven and live inside your house. Well, folks, if you're saved, God is living in a place far more personal than your house. He's living in you. He's living in you. And what that means is our mission as followers of Christ is far more wonderful, far more noble, far more important than perhaps anyone has ever told you. I think all of us reach a points in life once in a while where we really question why we're even here. What is the point of all this? God, why am I here? Why did you even give birth to me? What is my purpose in this world? I'll tell you what, folks. We've been given the divine life of Christ. We've been called to be his temple, to be his priests, living out every day, showing his glory to the nations. If that's not a reason to get up in the morning and live, I don't know what is. We are his living stones, his temple, the dwelling place of God. We are his priests offering up sacrifices, pleasing to him, representing him to the world, declaring his praises for all to see and hear. I close with this one more verse, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What an extraordinary truth this is. What an incredible mission we've been given. It's much more than dragging ourselves out of bed every Sunday morning to go and fulfill our obligation to sit in a chair for a while. No! The Christian life is so much grander than that. It's so much more important than that. 
As we go through this week and all the weeks to come, I pray that the beauty and the wonder of this truth would dawn upon us. I pray that it would put joy in our heart and purpose in our step and hope in our future like never before. You are the temple of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my